Welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts with hosts Margaret Pickoff and Sandy Feather. And welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast from Penn State Extension for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts. I'm one of your hosts, Margaret Pickoff. I'm a horticulture educator with Penn State Extension, and on each episode, I'm joined by one of my colleagues on the green industry team as a co-host. On today's episode, my co-host is Sandy Feather. Hi, Sandy. Hey, Margaret. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks um, for having me. I'm I'm excited about today's topic. <laughs> me too. On today's episode, we're going to be joined by Nancy Knaus, formerly of the Penn State Master Gardener Program. But before we get to our interview with Nancy, we like to start out with a little check-in between extension educators about what we're seeing or working on at this time of year. And as we're recording, it is um, the third week of January. So Sandy, what are you seeing, working on, hearing about out in the landscape or in your office? Well, it certainly is a busy programming time. I'm uh, about midway through my pesticide applicator short course. You know, we're the uh, virtual turf and ornamental conference is in full swing. First week of February, I've got a greenhouse meeting. So this is definitely busy meeting season. As far as what I'm seeing outdoors, we just had a pretty cold, nasty stretch. And I, I, I'm wondering what impact that's going to have on plants because it wasn't quite as bad as what we had right before Christmas last year. Mm-hmm. But we've had this incredibly mild stretch of weather and then boom, you know, we were down into the single digits. And I just, you know, that had a pretty big impact on broadleaf evergreens, especially things like boxwood last year. It seemed to me that boxwood, hydrangea and roses really took a hit hmm. from that cold weather. And I just wonder... You know, we're going to see something similar this year. Hmm. Yeah, I was kind of uh, relieved that it got cold just because um, after that cold snap around Christmas last year, we had such a mild winter and that was, um, it just, it felt wrong. And so <laughs> not only did we get cold, but we also got our first snow. I think it was the first appreciable mm-hmm. snow in in Philly in over two years. And so people here were very excited um, about that. And uh, something I noticed is people use a whole lot of salt on Mm -hmm. their sidewalks. And I um, passed by a church that's near our our house and they had just totally covered the sidewalk, (laughs) all of their steps with um, with salt. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that. Um, you know, we're bordered in Philadelphia by two rivers. Um, and you know, how much of that salt is making its way into the water, but also what, what's it going to do to, to our, um, street trees as well. So I just saw, um, there's an article that just came out, uh, through WHYY talking about how Drexel is researching, a different type of concrete to be used um, that absorbs solar energy when it's warm and then releases it when it's cold as a way to kind of cut down on the amount of salt used because uh, the ice would theoretically uh, melt faster, I guess. So because of the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've also heard that the 
um, creation of concrete is responsible for a huge amount of <laughs> carbon emissions. Um, Apparently, <laughs> that's true, and yeah. it's the it's the the uh, cement portion of concrete. Apparently, it's a very energy intensive process to create cement. Yeah. I, I had no idea, to be honest with you. Yeah, so it's a little of a double-edged sword there, but um, but a creative solution. And if it cuts down on the salt, um, uh, you know, that's, we'll take it. That is that is a good thing for our for our trees in the in the stressful urban environment. So. <laughs> that's just one more stressor in an urban environment, near as I can tell. But yeah, you know, anything we can do to to minimize some of those impacts, I think, is good. Yeah. Um, great. Well. Uh, thanks, Sandy, for being here. And um, let's welcome on our guest for today, Nancy Knaus. Um, Nancy is former, was formerly the statewide coordinator of the Penn State Master Gardener Program. Uh, she's recently retired, um, and uh, we have a lot of questions for her about what her her next endeavor has entailed and um but we're excited to have you on nancy so welcome to our podcast thanks so much for inviting me i'm happy to be here um so your i was i was doing a little bit of research about you nancy and kind of your path to um to the penn state master gardener program i understand that before coming to Penn State Extension, you were the director of adult education at the Phipps Conservatory um, in Pittsburgh, and then became a coordinator, a master gardener coordinator in Allegheny County before becoming the statewide coordinator. So, um, I, you know, I'll, there's a through line there, obviously, of educating about horticulture, but I kind of wonder what originally drew you into the world of horticulture and plants. So um, I really grew up working outside a lot alongside my father and really um, got an interest in plants that way. I started out as a um, biology major and then soon changed to becoming a horticulture major just, just because I enjoyed being outside working with plants. And um, my first job when I was in college, I hoed weeds in a nursery. This was before the days of any kind of herbicides. So I spent all day outside weeding in between those nursery rows, and I still loved it, then went on to work at garden centers. And um, then uh, I became the horticulture instructor at the Community College of Allegheny County and ran their solar greenhouse there. So that was my mm -hmm. first sort of step into education. And when I had children, I wanted something a little bit more flexible. So I started an interior landscaping business which I had for um, several years. And then I went on to become the director of education at the Pittsburgh Civic Garden Center, which then was absorbed by Phipps and then became the adult education director when I worked at Phipps. So it's been a long road, but it's been a great fun time. And I just, I love the industry. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so you eventually wound up um well, I know you're you're a Penn State alum, is that correct? I am a Penn yeah. State alum. I went okay. to school when there were like 400 people in the hort horticulture 101 classes. So wow. it was a very, very popular major when I was in school. Yeah. And then, um, so after your time at, at Phipps, you became the Master Gardener Coordinator in Allegheny. Um, we have talked about the Master Gardener program on this podcast before. We had Erin Kinley on um 
last year. Um, and so we've, you know, we've talked a little bit about the program, but I guess, is, was there something particular about the Master Gardener program that made you interested in becoming a coordinator or working with that particular type of uh, a volunteer? The volunteers that um, go through the Master Gardener program are really just totally amazing. Mm -hmm. If you ever needed anything done, they would take it to a level beyond what your expectations were and just did it with enthusiasm and just a willingness that was just unparalleled. So it was really very heartwarming. I loved working with the master gardeners because you could have an idea and you would think, okay, this is what we want to do. This is how we want this garden to look. And it, it just always exceeded expectations. So it was really a rewarding program. And the neat thing, too, I think is, you know, a lot of people come to that volunteer program with very accomplished careers and interests and hobbies and so forth that, you know, I can remember when I was the Master Gardener Coordinator in Allegheny County, um, uh, you know, we had a, a fellow who was like a master bonsai practitioner, and mm -hmm. he knew way more about bonsai than I ever will, I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> but that's a great part about the program right everybody's got these amazing talents and interests and they just are so willing to share them so it's a continual learning process and the the education that's provided by Penn State is really just absolutely it's solid and it gives people such a good background and that's why so many people want to take the program because you really can't find anything that is just so in-depth and comprehensive mm. Yeah, and I think we and we talked about this before, but we as educators also end up benefiting from that volunteer force as well. Oh, um, absolutely, in so many ways, master gardeners help us. Uh, you know, staff our our programs. They moderate breakout rooms. They staff the registration mm -hmm. table, but also just provide um, another level of um, support to our clients. Um, you know, if people have questions, horticultural questions, um, and also they're some of the most observant people I've ever met as mm -hmm. far as landscape issues. And when I was a master gardener coordinator in New Jersey, I found that oftentimes the first way that we learned about a new, um, insect or something odd happening with a certain type of plant in the landscape was from a master gardener who just had been trained to identify when something was a little bit weird. <laughs> and they kind of are this uh, great uh, and scientists, you know, they thousands, mm -hmm. thousands of sets of eyes on the right. on the landscape. Um, so, so I imagine that that going from the county level to then the state level where you're overseeing the program of, um, you know, the whole state of Pennsylvania must have been uh, a, quite a rewarding um, transition as well. It was. Um, you, it changed a little bit, you know, when you're overseeing the whole statewide program, you get involved in a little bit more of the bureaucracy and you get moved mm -hmm. away a little bit from the horticulture. But I enjoyed trying to you know, make the program uniform so that the training was uniform throughout the state and that there were procedures that were uniform across the state, which took time to yeah. evolve, but I think we finally got there. So what's your, what's, what accomplishment are you proudest of as having been the state master gardener coordinator? Well, 
that's an easy question for me. It, it's putting together that manual. Because when I first um, came to Penn State, there were other counties that were using manuals from other states. And ours hadn't been updated for over 25 years. And I remember I went to one of the professors at the university and I said, you know, should I attempt this or should we just use another state's manual? And he was like, no, you need to do this. We need to have our own manual. And it did take four years. And um, so a lot of work went into it, but I'm I'm very proud of that accomplishment. And you should be. That manual's wonderful. <laughs> and now other states are using our manual. That's so. true. That yeah, I can <laughs> attest to that as we used it in our master gardener program in New Jersey. And um and it is it's uh it just a beautiful, beautifully um laid out, uh very um well researched um reference guide to so many of the topics that are necessary for master gardeners to know about. Um, but I would, I mean, I, I flip it open once in a while for myself. Um, some of particularly the large color photos of different insects and, um, you know, how to prune something. There's great diagrams. Um, just, it seemed like drawing on all the best parts of extension educators knowledge and putting that all together in a way that makes sense to someone who might be totally new to horticulture um, yeah. is a huge achievement. And yeah, it's a very You're valuable absolutely right. It, it just involved so many people. I couldn't have done it with all the educators, the hort professors. I had a master gardener who was a botanical artist that did mm -hmm. all the illustrations and people gave me images. So it, it was just, it really happened because so many people shared their expertise. Mm. Yeah, that is a major, major accomplishment that we're all benefiting from. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, great. Well, so we also wanted, so you've recently retired from that role um, as state coordinator. Um, and I understand, are you, you're still based in the Pittsburgh area? Right. I'm still in the Allegheny County um, program and I'm involved. I do a little bit of seed to supper and I edit there garden labels for the state so that I, I stay involved. And I also write for the local newspaper and edit those columns. So I, I am involved, you know, still with the Master Gardener program as a Master Gardener now. Wow, that's great. It's come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, something we were really curious about is your latest endeavor. Um, so being somebody who has been in the horticulture world for a long time in different roles and has had an education focus. Um, we understand that you've developed a horticultural tour business as well. And um, we're really curious to hear more about that. So can you tell us a little bit about sure. it? Yes. So when I was at Penn State, I was um, I worked with Colette Travel and the RHS, which is the Royal Horticultural Society, who was a partner with Colette. And they actually built garden tours for Colette. And we offered these to master gardeners. And then when I retired, um, Colette said, would you continue working with us on garden tours? And, you know, uh, the RHS was no longer working with them. So they said, you'd need to develop the sites that you wanted to visit, but we'd like to continue to partner with you. So I thought, you know, this is a great way. I'm just passionate about horticulture and gardening. Um, this is a great way to see gardens all over the world and also share them with others that are also impassionate. So um, I started a company called Xylem Excursions, 
with a friend of mine who's also a master gardener and had gone on all the tours. And um, for those of you that know, xylem is that vascular tissue in the plant that transports water throughout the plant. So our version of it is we're the xylem that are transporting you all over the country to see. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So um, I guess what, uh, so you've already answered one of my questions was, are these local tours or are they um, national tours or international? It sounds like they're happening all over the world. Yes, they're international tours. So we've been to the gardens in London, um, the Loire Valley in France, mm. and gardens in um, northern Italy. And last year we went to Scotland and England. And this year we're going to Ireland. So we've been all over, we've not been all over the world, but they're international. And how long do the tours typically last? And how many people are on them? Just to give um, us a, a picture of what they look like. They're um, generally, the tours last nine to 12 days, you're 10 to 12 days usually. And um, initially the tours, we could take up to 44 people, but my partner and I have shifted now and we're doing what we call exploratory tours. So they're limited to 24 people. And this way you can really um, get a much more personal experience in the country, we do a lot more interactive activities. So for example, next year, we're going to, um, um, let's see, Ireland. And when we go to Ireland, we're going to a cooking school. And the grounds of the cooking school are this large organic farm, where they grow all the fruits and vegetables and herbs for the cooking school. And the cooking school is run by um, a chef and she is sort of the uh pioneer of the slow food movement in ireland mm -hmm. and then um when we go next we're, we're going to france in 2024 we're going to do truffle hunting we're going to be going to a goat oh, wow farm, um where they make cheese and we'll have a meal there at the cheese farm and then um in Paris, we'll have a food tour. So when you have a smaller group, in answer to your question, when you have a smaller group, you can do some more of these more um, smaller activities that I think really make the tour a richer experience. What criteria do you use to choose gardens? So the criteria that we use to choose gardens, we I like to make sure that I get a mix of gardens. So for example, um, We'd like to go to some public gardens. We've gone to Kew and Wisley and the um, garden, the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. And there you really get more of a, you know, a, a deep education and you can really learn about different genera of plants and really sort of delve in deep into horticulture. Um, but we will also visit um, private gardens. We're going to um, a private garden in Ireland. And when the way that I sort of get the private gardens, if I know somebody, that's one connection. But I found this garden on the internet and I um, sent the, the folks a letter asking if we could visit. And then I then share that information with Colette, who manages all the, okay. the actual details. So we'll do private gardens. And then we also will go to um, just... Gardens that maybe have a little bit of specialty interest, they may have rock gardens that are special, they may have a large collection of plants. So we really try to mix up the um, types of gardens that we see. Um, 
just to make it a little bit more interesting to to folks. We'll also visit formal gardens. Like when we went to France, we went to Versailles mm-hmm. and Chenon. So some of those very, very formal gardens. But the other thing is gardens are really inspirational. So um, when we went to um, Northern England and Scotland, we visited the garden of William Wardsworth, who is, you know, a, a famous author. And his garden was really inspirational to him. He would walk his garden and he would get inspiration from that garden. And the interesting thing that I learned about Wardsworth is in the 1770s, he was promoting the use of native plants. And he was telling the people in, you know, that area of England not to be introducing non-native species and conifers into the area, that we wanted to keep the beauty of that area. And it was eventually developed as the largest public park in England. And he was also the inspiration behind the national park system in America. So a lot of times we think, oh, you know, native plants, it's all new. Not really. He had that Mm -hmm. idea way back in the 1770s. He was also friends with Emerson and Thoreau. So, and it's neat to see that his garden was his inspiration. Mm -hmm. Another garden that we visited from an author was um, the uh, Beatrix Potter Garden. It was Hilltop in Northern England. So we've all read those Peter Rabbit books. And it was just like, it was surreal to sort of step into that garden and see that little gate. And you, you know, you go into the garden and there was Mr. McGregor's garden. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of connections in the gardening world. So when you, uh, do you take uh, inspiration from these gardens, public or private that you see and take them home? Yes, absolutely. And um, so one of one of the things that I particularly like that they do in England and in Scotland, a lot of these gardens, I don't know if you are familiar with pea staking, but <laughs> pea staking is an, is an old practice that used to be used in vegetable gardens. They would take um, woody branches and basically insert them all around the plant and create like an armature. And then the plant would grow up through it. And you would really have a support that was very unobtrusive and just very natural looking in the garden. So, you know, when I saw that, I was like, you know what, I have to do this. And so I've got plenty of brush in my garden from um, birch trees and uh, hazelnut and oaks. So I use that those twiggy branches to really create some structure for a lot of my climbing things like clematis and baptisia, those plants that fall over, flock, mm-hmm. et cetera. Nice. nice. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I kind of wonder, um, and I, yeah, I, in my mind, the people who go on these tours are similar to the people we see joining the master gardener program, but like, who, who do you draw into this? Who's most excited to sign up for these tours and and what are they looking to get out of it? So I would say most people that go on the tour have a very keen interest in horticulture. So they love plants. And however, we, sometimes we get professionals. And for example, when we went to um, Edinburgh and we were at the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. One of the women that was there had worked in the industry for many years. And she was like, you know what? I'm staying at this garden all day long. So she was able to just stay there, found her way back to the hotel. So we get different levels of people that are interested. 
um, for our upcoming tour to Ireland, we we have master gardeners generally, but we have a contingent coming from Ohio. So I was nice. one person found out about it. And now we have a group of about eight that are coming from Ohio. But then again, you, you have people that um, bring their partners along that have really not a lot of interest in horticulture or gardening. But you know what? The gardens are so beautiful that you just sort of in the surroundings, you just sort of have to soak it all in and really enjoy, you know, while you're there, you can just sit on a bench or walk and really, you know, enjoy the day. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like gardens are such an interesting reflection of, um, of a place's culture and, and history, like you had mentioned um, and literature and art and, um, it seems like even if you weren't someone who's going to be, you know, botanizing and trying to identify plants down to the species level and, um, you know, really nerd out on the plant part that you could find something there that kind of uh, connects you to something interesting in your life. Absolutely. It's so true. It really is. Yeah. So, so what does a general tour consist of? You know, uh, you said about people bring their partners who aren't necessarily into plants so much. So I, I have to assume that it it's not all just about plants. Uh, do you go sightseeing uh, like natural wonders or even important cultural things in the places you visit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, because, for example, if you're going to a new country or a new capital city, you want to learn a little bit about that history and the climate of that area, the people. And we do have um, a tour manager that comes on all the tours that's with us the whole time. That's from the country we're visiting. And okay. so they really provide that information about, you know, customs, culinary, just like I said, the political climate, just the people, the history. So they really are providing a lot of that information. But we we also go to monuments and churches. There's often, you know, gardens associated with them. For example, we're going to Blarney Castle. And the gardens at Blarney Castle are quite extensive. They've got a poison garden, a carnivorous plant garden. They have an herbaceous border. So it won't just be about kissing that Blarney stone. We probably <laughs> spend a lot of our time in the gardens. And um, the same is true. We're going to a place that's the national stud in Ireland, and they have a really nice Japanese garden there. So we may go to those famous iconic places, but frequently there are gardens associated. <laughs> and then we're, we'll go to um, beautiful sort of natural sites. We're going to see the cliffs of Moore and, you know, walk along those places and go on little boat rides, et cetera. So you'll see some of just the natural beauty of the surrounding country. Nice. I think um, as people who part of our job is kind of um, event planning and management, even though it doesn't seem like it'd be a big part of being an extension educator, but um, you know, putting on events, you know, it's very, you have to be very detail oriented. You have to think of uh, special accommodations for people with, um, you know, dietary restrictions, all these sorts of details that we're kind of used to thinking through. And so I'm kind of wondering what is the logistical side of this look like? Um, or what's, what is your role in the, the logistics and what's the most important thing 
to making sure that these tours run smoothly from a from a more logistical standpoint. Okay, so once once the tour is happening, as I mentioned, there's a tour manager and they really take care of a lot of the logistics because they're from that country. They work with the the coach and the lodging um site. And so they really make all that happen. What I will do is if we're at, at a garden, for example, and we may be finishing early, because it's a custom tour, I can say to the guide, you know what, we're all finished up, let's just move on to the next place. So we, mm-hmm. we've we got a little flexibility with our schedule and arranging stuff. Now, it's good to have multiple people because we have had people get hurt mm-hmm. and fall and end up in the hospital. So this way, like I or Carol, my partner can go and spend time with that person and make sure they get the appropriate medical attention while the tour manager can go on with the tour. So it's good to have many people because, you know, just things happen. Hmm. And is there any level of like pre, pre-scouting pre that you have to do or any of your colleagues have to do? Or are these places one of you has been to before so you can kind of vet them ahead of time? Or do you just go on the you know, the recommendations of other people and, um, or, or do you just trust that they will be <laughs> good yeah. sites? Well, there is a lot of planning involved. And um, I have had, I have visited some of the this countries before. So some of the gardens I'm familiar with, or I have visited them. So I, I have that sort of in the background. But what I will do is, when I determine what I'm going to, where I'm going to go for a site, usually I try to pick something that I think is really like iconic that people would want to visit. So for example, we're going to be going to um, France and Provence in 2025. And the idea was to see the lavender fields. So that Mm -hmm. was the, the destination. That was the focus that, that really determined the site. And as I was researching about the um, lavender fields, I thought I'd share this with you as well. You know, we all imagine these rows and rows of of lavender. And because of climate change, they're having issues with less water and insect problems and, and the high temperatures. So the growers and the business people in the city, along with different researchers, are developing varieties of lavender that may be more adapted to that, uh, those conditions. They're considering using irrigation, and they're also going to interplant the lavender with other plants. So those days of just seeing rows of lavender may be in the past. We may start to see lavender intermixed with other plants to help bring pollinators in. So I thought that was interesting. Neat. And I, and I, I have to say that I don't really associate lavender with a lot of insect problems here. But it does have yeah. problems yeah. there because it's just such a monoculture. Right, right. Anytime you have a monoculture. (laughs) So after I, you know, I I pick the the main site, then I start to plan out and find other gardens. And as I mentioned, I find different types of gardens that we would like to visit. And I will research on the internet. I'll read a lot of reviews because as you all know, if you've got a garden and it is not taken care of just for one year, it can become a mess. So I want to make sure that wherever I'm bringing people, the garden has been maintained. So then after I get my list of gardens, I actually have a friend that lives in the um, 
in London. And he was also a Penn State uh, Hort major and then went on to work at Phipps when I was working there. So we met at Phipps and he went on to study landscape architecture at Edinburgh and is now a landscape architect in London. He's very well traveled and has lots of connections. So this is just sort of another layer to make sure these gardens are you know, approved. I say, look at these gardens. Let me know what you think. Give me your suggestions. And then once he gives me his suggestions, then I pass it on to Colette. And Colette has, you know, a team of experts that can say, yep, these will all work. This is a good itinerary for the day. Or no, Nancy, you've just become too ambitious. We can't possibly see all these things in one day. Because <laughs> I get all excited. I'm like, oh, I want to see this and this. And they're like, no, you can't make that route in one day. So then they work on pulling it all together. So that's sort of how I I plan the um the garden part of it. Nice. And I'm I'm kind of curious because when I go to I certainly enjoy a guided tour, but I also really love just wandering and staring at things and sitting under beautiful trees when I'm visiting a new garden. And so I wonder um how much of it is kind of curated and guided um, as a group and how much um, time do people get to sort of explore on their own and just do whatever they like to do to connect with the garden? So when we go to the garden, if we can, I do arrange for a guide. Now you don't have to go on the guided tour, but I also think that the guide really is intimately involved with the garden. They can give you backstories on the garden. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of these plants aren't really plants that we're familiar with that you might know a lot of them, but you might have questions about them. So I think the guide is helpful for that. But then, you know, some people may choose to just go on their own and that's fine, or just sit on a bench. They may say, you know what, I have had enough walking for today. I'm just going to sit here and absorb it. And mm. that's fine. So whatever, whatever works for you. Yeah. And do you find that um, is there a lot of lively discussion that comes like um, amongst the the tour group about, I mean, you had mentioned the, you know, the the issues with lavender production and maybe how that's linked to climate change or, you know, their production methods and how they're trying different um, strategies. Like, does that get people talking about? Um, yeah, it does. Yeah, it really does. Another example of that that I that I thought was sort of interesting. So in Ireland and in England, they have lots of hedgerows, and they use the hedgerows to create boundaries on their property to and to keep in animals. But they're also living fences, and they're great habitats for birds. So they actually have a law in Ireland that you can't trim your um, hedgerow from March thirty first through August 31st, because that's when the birds are nesting. And mm. it's just something that you, it, I think that was really cool. And it gets people talking because, you know, I've never heard of any kind of regulation like that, but it is, it is exciting. And there's so many things that we're not used to that get people talking like that, like that example. Mm. The other, the other example that I just want to mention is that in one of the, the places that we visit, we also go to garden shows. So we went to Hampton Court Flower Show and we've been to Chelsea Flower Show. And these 
are are amazing exhibitions of plants. And it brings horticulture to a whole other level that we really don't see in America. I compare it to a sporting event. There are just hordes of people going towards this location, this, you know, show. There are people scalping tickets. There is traffic, (laughs) like you cannot believe to get into these places. You've got to get there early or you're going to be stuck in traffic for at least an hour. And you you get there, there are camera crews everywhere filming everything. And then on the evening news, they have a recap of what went on at the show. I mean, I've never seen horticulture brought to that (laughs) level. That's what we do for our sports. It's like football, yeah. (laughs) And I was just like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Mm. But, you know, you you go to these um, flower shows. And my favorite part, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Chelsea Flower Show or the Hampton Court Flower Show, but they have these large exhibition halls that have, they focus on different genera of plants. So there'll be a rainbow of lupins. There will be, and there are many, many displays. There'll be displays of primroses all in little frames. And there's agapanthus and daffodils and carnivorous plants with displayed just in the most exquisite, beautiful ways, more varieties than you can possibly imagine. And information on growing all these plants, it's just a wealth of information. And you just, too bad we can't buy the plants there, but. And that's a nice segue because one of our colleagues uh, wondered if you'd ever had to uh, bust somebody for trying to smuggle cuttings from some of these gardens. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, question. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, you're not allowed to bring those things back, but whatever anyone does, I don't know about. It's those uh, agents when we enter the country. And believe me, I would be too nervous to dare bring anything oh, in because they I, I would totally get busted and they'd ask would, me do you have anything and I I, I would be like yeah. I give myself away. <laughs> yeah, I do. I have all these cuttings in my suitcase. Yeah. It's tempting. Well the yeah. good thing is I I realize not everybody on these tours is a a dedicated gardener you know when people bring their right. partners and stuff but i would like to think that most of the the gardeners that are coming on these tours are respectful of those kind of laws and and they don't want to be responsible for bringing some horrible disease or insect pest back to this country <laughs> i think you can get i have never done this but i think you can go through the department of agriculture and get and get but it's a process oh right? yeah you have to get those phytosanitary certificates and all that stuff it would be it would be a lot you might be able to bring stuff back but it might have to go somewhere and be quarantined for x number of days or whatever right right for sure so um as we're getting towards the end of our conversation um i kind of wonder like what if there's one thing that you want people to take away from these tours Um, And it might not be the same for everything, but you personally, like, what's the thing that you want people walking away with after experiencing these tours? 
I guess I, I would say that horticulture really opens a lot of doors. It's not just about the plants. And I hope you got from some of my examples that, you know, we have a connection with literature and history and, you know, food. It's just there's so many doors that we're connected with, and it's really important. And I just think that people hopefully will see that when they go on tours, that it's it's not just about the plants, but all the connections that plants have in our lives. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think we can all attest to that. Um, yeah. That's and beautiful. It's in your blood, it's just in your blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you'll never travel the same way again because I think um yeah, it's it's once you've seen some of these examples, I'm sure beautiful gardens. I, I imagine that people will seek out special gardens to visit wherever they go um in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation um, and we really appreciate you coming on to talk to us. Um, well, thanks for inviting me. It, it was fun and I love to share my experiences. Uh, we, kind of, we always end our conversations asking our guests what they like to do when they're not working. Um, and you're technically retired, but it sounds like you're still working quite a bit. So. <laughs> yeah, well, so, of course I love to garden, so I can never get enough gardening in. But I also love to golf and I'm a really, um, I'm not a competitive golfer. I've been golfing for about 10 years. I have a great time just being outside. I've never kept score. Um, so I enjoy that. And I also um, hook rugs and oh. it took me about a year to hook a rug. Basically you, I don't know if you're familiar with it, you create your own design. So like I have a vegetable rug and I have a landscape that is, um, it's the location where my grandfather was born in France. So you design the rug and then you collect wool. You can dye it and you have different patterns and you um, cut it into strips and then you hook it into the rug and really create your own sort of pattern. It takes me a long time to do, but maybe now that I'm retired, I'll be able to get one done in less than a year. So I'm doing that. Whoa, that sounds amazing. Well, I would love to see a picture of one sure, of your I'll rugs. You. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Um, amazing. Well, thanks, Nancy. This has been so fun. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll look out for more information about um, tours. And, you know, maybe one day we'll get to join you on one of them. And that I would, would love lovely. to. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, take care. Thanks, okay. Nancy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.